It's good to see you this morning. Everybody all bundled up? Warm? Someone told me out front that um, Christmas, New Year's, and winter all came on a Sunday this year. So, I'll take it. Glad that you're here this morning. I heard a story about a, a loudmouth mechanic who was working in his shop one day and he saw a, a pretty well-known heart surgeon come into his mechanic's shop. And he stopped what he was doing, straightened up, wiped his hands on a greasy old rag and said, hey, Doc, come over here. I want to show you something. And the heart surgeon's a little bit surprised that he's getting called into you know, the work day there, but he walks over and the mechanic says, okay, take a look at what I'm doing. I'm taking the very heart out of this car. And I'm tearing it all apart. I'm stripping it down. I'm putting in some new valves. I'm cleaning everything up. When I put it all back together, this baby is going to be purring like a kitten. So tell me, Mr. Fancy Pants Doctor, how come you get the big bucks when basically we're both doing the exact same thing? The surgeon leaned over and whispered to him, try doing it with the engine running. You know, there is a difference, right? And when we talk about life and death issues, we're talking about some pretty important stuff. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you before or not, but when we get together in times like this, what we're talking about are life and death issues. When we talk about God, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about God's will in our life, when we're talking about our spiritual journey, really what we're talking about are life and death issues. In fact, it's even bigger than that because we're talking really about eternal life and eternal death issues. It's pretty high stakes, the things that we're talking about. And in the spirit of sort of total disclosure, I want to go ahead and tell you that being a preacher is a really different job. It's really kind of an odd job. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's your problem because it's not a job, it's a calling. Okay, I get that. But still, they pay me to do it. And it's not my only job that I've ever had, but it is by far the most frightening job I've ever had. And I'll tell you why. I understand, I, I am acutely aware the responsibility that, are, that, I, that I have as I stand up here, you know, and, and I talk about God. And I talk about Jesus. And I really do put a lot of time and effort into what I say. I agonize over what I'm going to talk about and how I'm going to say it. I stay up at nights thinking about what does God want me to say and you know how does he want me to share it. Years ago, Alex Humphrey told me, if you want to be a preacher, you need to be three things. You need to be biblical, you need to be applicable, and you need to be interesting. But if you can only be one thing, be biblical. <laughs> Which sounds like Alex Humphrey, right? I want to be biblical and applicable and interesting. But if I can only be one thing, I really do want to be biblical. We're spending this quarter uh, in our adult classes talking about the subject of grace. If you're not in the habit of staying for classes, boy, you need to get in the habit starting today. There are absolutely wonderful classes going on right after this. Get yourself a cup of coffee and then uh, you know, sit down in a class. You won't be embarrassed. Uh, very laid-back uh, kind of atmosphere, but I really encourage you. Now, it's where community kind of starts and where you get to know people and really get to kind of be able to dig into God's Word. But we've been started this, this 
uh, quarter talking about grace, and several people told me last week, you didn't preach on grace. Sure I did. I preached Jesus last week. And really, you can't understand grace without a better understanding of Jesus. And the better you understand Jesus, the better we'll understand and appreciate grace. So I'm actually going to be spending the next couple weeks talking about Jesus. Last week, the first Sunday of the new year, we talked about kind of who we are as a church. You know, what's the deal with us? And we landed in the, in the scripture, Colossians chapter 1. We proclaim him, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And we sort of briefly introduced this idea of Jesus as the master teacher. And I really want to follow up on that this morning and think about the kind of impact that Jesus had as a teacher and the kind of impact that Jesus still has as a teacher and the things that he taught. And I want you to consider for a minute the kind of stir that Jesus made when he began teaching and preaching, the kind of crowds that he drew. You know, once he had to get in a boat and kind of get away from the shore a little bit just so all the crowds could hear him. Short people would climb trees just so they could get a glimpse of them. Once some fellas cut a hole in a roof and lowered their friend down through it because the house was so filled with people that uh, you know, they couldn't get their friend close enough to Jesus. Jesus drew these tremendous crowds. But the goal was never to draw crowds. Jesus' goal of his teaching was never to impress people with his knowledge. It was never to get big crowds. In fact, when the crowds got really big, he started giving them some really tough teaching. And you remember, a lot of people said, too hard, I'm leaving. And of course, his teaching eventually was so controversial and so volatile that it got him killed. And then just when everyone thought that it was over, a strange thing began to happen. His followers claimed that he'd been resurrected. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they, his followers, this, this brand new community of believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayer. So now the apostles start teaching as well. What do they teach? They teach Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his example, his kingdom. And they start running into the exact same problems that Jesus had. The, the, the religious movers and shakers of the day, they don't like that message any more from the apostles than they liked it from Jesus. And so at one point early on in this whole movement, this whole, uh, this whole new thing, a couple of those uh, disciples are arrested. Peter and John are arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. Peter and John are fishermen. The Sanhedrin is sort of like the spiritual elite of the day. They were the movers and shakers spiritually. So Peter and John are brought before them to, to kind of give an account of what they've been teaching and what they've been doing and what's up with you know, this thing going on. And it would sort of be like the staff of MIT bringing in a couple parking lot attendants and quizzing them on you know, uh, quantum mechanics or something. Peter and John should have been so out of their depth standing in front of the Sanhedrin, but they're not. They're not intimidated at all. In fact, Scripture says that the Sanhedrin doesn't know exactly what to do with these two guys. If you look in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
And it wasn't just the uneducated, blue-collar, ordinary men that were impacted by the teaching of Jesus. Paul was just the opposite. Paul ran in a very fast academic lane. Paul was a really smart guy, highly educated. In fact, Paul studied at the feet of probably the most famous rabbi of that time, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. When it comes to Jesus, Paul says this about him, about Jesus. Colossians chapter 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He never said that about Gamaliel. He never said that about himself. He says that about Jesus. The teachings of Jesus, they, they applied to and they connected with the, the fishermen and the PhDs as well. There was an old saying that said the teaching of Jesus was a river that a gnat could swim in and an elephant could drown in. No one's teaching ever impacted the world like the teaching of Jesus. So this morning I want to look at that teaching a little bit and just how it changed the world. And first, I want to talk about how Jesus taught because his style was really different. And I'm going to warn you up front, this next little section might get a little bit tedious, but I'm begging you to stay with me because I think it's really important. I know that's dangerous for a preacher to say, hey, this might get a little boring here for a second. But stay with me, because uh, I think it's significant. I know it's significant. How did Jesus teach? Over and over again in Scripture, we're told that Jesus taught with authority. Take a look at Matthew chapter 7, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority not as their teachers of the law. And then Mark says this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 1. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then just a couple of verses later in the book of Mark, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. How did Jesus teach? He taught with authority. Okay, what does that mean? Now we read that, what exactly does that mean? Because it's the people who are saying, hey, this guy's different. This isn't Jesus saying about himself. This isn't the disciples telling people, hey, pay attention because he's speaking with authority. These are the people saying, this guy's different. He is he's speaking, he's teaching with authority. What did that mean exactly? In Jesus' day, you know this, there were certain religious people who were called rabbis. They were people, they were Jewish men who were experts in the law. They were experts in Torah, the Word. They were qualified to, to tell people and explain to people what God's Word meant and how it applied to them and how they should apply it to their lives. Question for you. In the Old Testament... How many rabbis do you read about? 39 books. In the Old Testament, how many rabbis do you hear 
scripture talking about? Zero. None. The word's not in the Old Testament. There, there weren't rabbis, apparently, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, before Jesus, for God's people, there were prophets and priests and, and kings. If you know your Hebrew history, you know that the, uh, uh, the kingdom of Israel was split into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's wiped out. The southern kingdom's overrun. By the time Jesus shows up, Israel was not what Israel used to be. In fact, by the time Jesus shows up, it's been about 400 years, as far as we know, that God has spoken to his people through prophets. When Jesus shows up in the first century, things in Israel seem to be uh, going wrong. They have no army. They have no wealth. They have no freedom. They have no power. They have no prophets. They have no kings. But they do have something. They have a book. No other people had a book like the people of Israel. They loved the book. They studied the book. The book told them that there was one true God. The book told them how that God expected them to live. The book told them what they could expect from that God. The book told them how they should conduct their business, how they should treat each other, how they should conduct their relationships. They loved the book. Other countries, other nations had things that they were proud of. Rome had the armies and Greek had the, the, uh, had the uh, culture. Egypt had the wealth. Phoenicia had the ships. Israel had the book. In fact, they were known as people of the book. They, they learned from the book. This group of people kind of emerged on the scene, these experts in the book, and they called themselves rabbis. A rabbi was somebody who, who knew the book, loved the book. In Scripture, 11 times, Jesus is referred to as a rabbi, someone who could interpret the book, make application of it. Rabbis were very respected, very much looked up, up to. It's important because 2,000 years removed, we sort of missed this. Rabbis in the first century would, would read the book, they would read a passage of Scripture, and then they would explain to the crowd what that meant. In the synagogues, they would get up and they would read a passage of Scripture, and then they would tell you what it meant. But here's what was very, very common in the first century for a rabbi. Not only would he explain what he thought the, the, the passage meant, but he would cite other rabbis. Very common. He would read a passage and say, okay, here's what the passage says, Here's what Rabbi Halil says about this. And he would tell you what another rabbi says. Here's what the passage says. Here's what this other rabbi said about this. Very, very common. Then Jesus shows up. And again, I'm begging you, stick with me here. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't teach like any other rabbi. He teaches with authority. Quite often, Jesus would say, Truly I say unto you, in fact, if you're reading an older version, say, Verily I say unto you. Then when you get to the book of John, Jesus doubles down on that and says, Truly, truly I say unto you. Over 50 times in the book of John, Jesus says, Truly, truly I say unto you. And what Jesus is saying over and over and over again is, I know. I know what I'm talking about. I know your heart. 
I know the heart of God. I know what God wants you to do. I don't have to have anyone interpret this for me. I have perfect understanding of the book. Jesus is saying, I am not going to refer to, I am not going to defer to anyone else in this matter. I know. In fact, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven, under heaven and on earth. I speak with authority because I have authority. I am the authority. And of course, he's very humble as well. Now, he washes people's feet. He serves people who are needy. In fact, you know, the, the people who are really hurting seem to be drawn to Jesus. And this combination of total humility and complete authority is really attractive. And it's really, really powerful. That's how Jesus taught. He taught with authority. And we sort of take that for granted today. But we need to remind ourselves, Jesus knows. When he speaks, he is speaking with total authority. Okay, that's how he taught. Why did he teach? And again, Jesus is introducing this whole new purpose of teaching. And he didn't teach like other, other teachers of the law. In fact, that's what they said. He doesn't teach like anybody else. In fact, Jesus didn't really teach the way we usually teach today. You know, even in our society today, most teaching is the idea of, as a teacher, I'm going to impart something to the student. You kind of get the idea of, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, the student is a, you know, an empty vessel that the teacher fills up with knowledge. And the way you can prove that the teaching was effective was, would be if the student can regurgitate that information back to you. That's still kind of our system of education, right? A teacher fills up a student with information, and then they're tested on that information to see if they know what the teacher taught. That's why those of you who are teachers know the very first question when you're introducing new material to a class is, will this be on the test? Because if this isn't on the test, why do I need to know it? little boy comes home from school on the very first day of first grade. His mother said, what did you learn today? little boy said, apparently not enough. They're making me go back tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus didn't teach just to fill us with knowledge. He didn't teach just to prove how much he knew. He taught to change lives. Jesus taught to change lives. And if you're learning about Jesus and your life isn't changing, you are not learning the things that Jesus wants to teach you. And that really is the bottom line. If you are learning about Jesus and your life's not changing, then you're not learning the things that Jesus wants to teach you. Jesus taught to change lives. And the people who listened, the people who obeyed, their lives were changed. Again, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus never taught just to pass along important information, just to make us smarter. Jesus always taught to make us better. He taught to change lives. How did he teach? He taught with authority. Why did he teach? He taught to change lives. I'll ask the same question that I asked last week. Do you have an expectation of your life changing the closer you get to Jesus? The more you learn, 
Are you expecting to grow? To change? Well, finally, what did Jesus teach? And we're not going to answer that in the next five minutes, but let me share just a couple thoughts with you. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed Him, Jesus said, If you hold to My teaching, you really are My disciples. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then right before Jesus dies, He's talking to Pilate about His mission. He says in John 18, You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came to the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. Isn't that still the question everybody wants an answer to? What is truth? Is there such a thing? Is there really such a thing as absolute quantitative truth? Jesus says there is, and it's all tied up in God. One time an expert of law came and asked Jesus a question, which happened pretty often, really, to new rabbis. You know, young rabbis, people would come and ask them questions to learn and also to test them. In this instance, this is certainly a test. Guy was probably trying to trip Jesus up. Matthew chapter 22, we're really familiar with this passage. We know the question. In fact, we know the answer. We know the whole dialogue that goes on. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Again, we know the dialogue. We know what the question was. We know how Jesus is going to answer. Except Jesus answers in doing something that was unheard of for a rabbi in that day. The way Jesus answers would have been unheard of. He answers with Deuteronomy chapter 6, which not would, have, would, would not have been unheard of. Every rabbi quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6. In fact, every Jew quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6. You have no idea how sacred that statement is to the Jewish people. It's called the Shema. That scripture would have been cited, would have been, would have been spoken every time the, the synagogue doors were open. Any self-respecting Jew would have, would have said that out loud at least twice a day. Every family would have taught their children that verse as soon as they could speak. It was so sacred. And so special. I mentioned before, it's kind of like the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, to us. Everybody knew it. Everybody could recite it. Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he does a staggering thing. He answers in a way that would have caused those rabbis, those other teachers, those experts, really everybody in the crowd, their jaw would have dropped. Now, we miss it sometimes. In fact, I bet you've missed it, the way Jesus answers but, but Jesus, here's his answer. What's the greatest commandment in the law? He answers this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
you notice that Jesus added something to the Shema? He added a word. What did he add? He added mind. Deuteronomy says, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Jesus says, all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now, if you're a real student of the word, you'll know that in Mark, he does say strength. But he still adds the word mind. You might have missed that. They would not have missed that. He quoted that wrong. Ooh, he didn't say it right. He added a word. It's not mind. But of course, Jesus speaks with authority. Why did Jesus say, with all your mind? What does that mean? To love God with all your mind. I think part of it is to think about God. I think part of it is to be curious about God. Do you ever think about God? Are you curious about God? You know, when you're in love with someone, you think about them. When you're really in love with someone, you think about them all the time. I wonder what she's doing right now. I wonder what she's thinking. I wonder what he's up to. You know, I've known people, Christians, who it seems have gone a long time without really thinking much about God. Without being curious about God. What's God like? What does God expect? What does God mean when he, when he made this statement? What's God trying to tell me in this passage? Love God with all your mind. Think about Him all the time. Read the Bible. It's all about Him. Listen to Jesus. Be curious about God. Don't be afraid to ask questions. To, to dig and to, to question. Now there's usually a slide in the, on the board here when you first come in to silence your cell phones. Turn them off. Nobody's asking you to turn off your brain. What's God trying to teach me? What's God up to? Let me go back to the same verse that I landed on last week. It's Romans chapter 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The Spirit of God transforms. But we've got to be willing to allow the Spirit to transform us. Jesus speaks with authority and He speaks truth, but we've got to allow that truth to affect our hearts. Because we're talking about our mind, our intellect. Paul has a warning for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Apostle Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Why would Paul say that? What would Paul know about knowledge? Remember, Paul's the knowledge guy. Paul's the intellect. Paul's the educated one. And Paul himself has come to a conclusion, you know what, knowledge can make you arrogant. But love makes a difference. Love builds up. And it seems like the knowledge guys learn the truth about love. Heard a story about a, a mother who has having trouble with her little boy. He wouldn't eat well. He kept eating nothing but you know uh, candy and junk food. And there was a teacher that had a way of working with children, 
And she was just sure if this teacher would talk to her child about his bad eating habits, that the child would listen. So she approached the teacher and said, would you please talk to my son? All he wants to eat is junk food. I can't get him to eat anything healthy. The teacher very respectfully listened to the woman and said, I'll tell you what, um, come back in a week and ask me again. So a week later, the mother comes back and says, things haven't gotten any better. All he'll eat is junk food, but I think he'll listen to you. Would you please talk to him about how important it is to have a balanced diet? Get rid of the junk food. Eat healthy foods. Teacher thinks a minute and says, I'll tell you what, um, come back and ask me again next week. The mother leaves a little bit frustrated, a whole lot disappointed, but a week later she comes back. My son still eats nothing but junk food. Would you please talk to him? And the teacher said, bring him in. I'll speak to him. And he set the little boy down. He talked to him about the importance of a balanced diet and how important it was to give up all that junk food and all those things that were so bad for him and to eat healthy foods. And he seemed to make a bit of a connection there. Afterward, the mother was very appreciative, said, thank you so much. That really helped. I just know it's going to help. But I've got to ask a question. Why did I have to come back three times? for three weeks before you would talk to my son. And the teacher said, ma'am, I had no idea how hard it was going to be for me to give up junk food and start eating healthy. Now, you've got to think about that for a minute. But it really makes a powerful point. See, that teacher could have just very condescendingly imparted some knowledge and some, some information, but instead he stepped into the life of that little boy. He didn't ask that little boy to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. And he, he learned how hard it was to change your life that way and how hard it was to do the right thing because he knew. He'd done it himself now. Jesus taught with authority. He taught absolute truth, but he also taught in love. Jesus exhibited perfect love. And he never asked us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. Jesus was an amazing teacher. But thankfully, he wasn't just a teacher. And the more time people spent with Jesus, the more they understood this man is more than just a teacher. In fact, those who were closest to him, the, the, the night before Jesus dies, he's spending time with his, with his apostles. They knew he was more than a great teacher. John chapter 13, you call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, for that's what I am. You know, too many people know Jesus just as teacher, and they appreciate Jesus for his teachings. Not enough people know him as Lord, and we need to do something about that, because it really is a matter of life and death. It's not just a, a matter of this is good and this is better. It's a matter of this is life and this is death. Jesus is life. Everything else is death. What did Jesus teach? He taught truth. In fact, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. And as followers of Jesus, you know, we follow truth wherever it leads. Because truth leads to Jesus. When you think about it, absolute truth leads to Jesus. So I'm not afraid of science. I'm a science guy. I'm not afraid of archaeology. I'm not afraid of physics. 
Because if those things are true, they're going to lead to Jesus. Maybe this morning you've known Jesus a long time as, as teacher. You know a lot of things about him. You know a lot of information. You've been filled with a lot of information, but your life hasn't really changed. Maybe you haven't been learning the things that Jesus wants to teach you. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. But that's what I am. Jesus is a phenomenal teacher, but he's also Lord. He taught with authority, and he said, that's what I am. I am Lord. The question is, is he your Lord? Travis has a song that we're going to use, a song of encouragement this morning. There's something on your heart that you want to share with the family here. Maybe you've never claimed Jesus as Lord. Never confessed Him as the Lord of your life and Son of God. Never been baptized into Christ because of your sins. We'd love to help you with that this morning. Maybe there's something else going on in your life. You just need the prayers of people who love you. There's going to be some people here at the front of the auditorium. If we can help you in any way, meet us down front. Let's stand and sing.